Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm fascinated by the power of story. And I love talking with all kinds of interesting people to find out about their journey and how they use that journey and leverage that journey to develop their mindset for performance. So we will talk with athletes, CEOs, coaches, really anybody who considers themselves to be a performer to find out about their mindset, how they develop their mindset to prepare, and how they develop their mindset to perform. So today we go beyond the surface with Ethan Zahn. Ethan's 43 years old, but he's already had a variety of unique experiences throughout his life. I got connected with Ethan through a mutual friend who works in Major League Soccer. And he said, you gotta talk with Ethan. So Ethan has a history where he played soccer. He played college soccer. He played professionally all over the world. So he'll share those experiences with us. And Ethan was also a competitor in the TV show Survivor. For those of you that don't know about Survivor, uh, you will learn a lot about Survivor, the show. It's still going on, uh, but Ethan was one of the first winners. He won season three. So Ethan's going to share with us what it was like to play professional soccer. Uh, That journey in itself is a fascinating one. Uh, He'll talk about being on the show, and he's also going to talk about other chapters in his life that really have helped shape who he is and what his purpose is as a human being. So as we go beyond the surface with Ethan, and we do go beyond the surface with him, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. And without further ado, I present to you, Ethan Zahn. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us on the Beyond the Surface podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you. We have a mutual friend, Amos, uh, who works in Major League Soccer. And Amos told me when I when I contacted him, he was like, hey, you got to you gotta get with Ethan, like on multiple levels. So I'm excited to chat with you today. Uh, you seem like a pretty conscientious guy, uh, or, or we'll find out if you're not. But either way, I think it'll be a fun conversation. And so what I'd love to do is just start out with your childhood and where you grew up, who you grew up with, what that dynamic was like. Uh, you know, I come from a psychology background, so we always want to unpack a little bit what happened in the beginning. So walk us through the childhood and, and what life was like for you as a kid. Oh my God! How much time do you have, my childhood? <laughs> it's really about no. how much time you have. So you give it to me. Uh, I can sit here all day and listen. That's that's what I love to do. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show, Amos. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine, a really smart guy, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be able to be talking to you. So, um, I you know I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts. Um, you know, Paul Revere shot her around the world. It was a you know nice community. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, as a conservative Jewish person in, the, in, in Lexington, Massachusetts. Um, I have a mom. I got two older brothers. I had a father. Um, however, well, when I was uh, 14 years old, my father passed away of colon cancer. So as you can imagine, a 14-year-old boy, you know, can get your psychology hat on right now and start thinking about things. Uh, but that definitely had a huge impact on my life uh, and my family's life, as you can imagine. But, um, you know, growing up, I was always like a pretty rambunctious kid, very athletic. You know, I was uh, the youngest of three, so my brothers would take me in the backyard and just blast soccer balls in my face. That's when I figured out I wanted to be a goalkeeper (laughs) when I was playing soccer. And I definitely strive to be like my brothers and be able to compete with them and their friends, you know. My middle brother, he's four years older than me. My oldest brother is uh, six years older than me. So it was definitely a good training ground for me growing up. So I have to chime in because I'm one of three boys and I'm the middle. And me and my older brother would constantly play hockey. We'd play soccer. And my younger brother was always the goalie. And so, so that vision is so clear in my head. And my younger brother played goalie in soccer. 
And uh, I, I like to think that we influenced him as well because it was sort of just like, Michael, you're going in the net and you're the goalie. Um, <laughs> so brothers, were they were into soccer or were they just into all kinds of sports? And what other sports were you into as a kid? Uh, growing up, I, I played all sports. And um, so at, my mom, unfortunately, kept me in figure skating for way too long. So when all my friends were like transitioning into like ice hockey and like full contact sports, I was like, you know, putting on my leggings and my nice little like it's a small world after all outfit and, you know, doing pirouettes on the ice skating court. Um, so that wasn't a proud moment of my life. Uh, but my mom thought it was it was character building. Right. Um, but, you know, I played, uh, you know, soccer. I played basketball in the winter and I played lacrosse in the spring. And during the summer, I pretty much focused on soccer. Got it. And I don't. We don't need to go too deep into this, but you're 14 years old. You have this massive event happen, and it sounds like your brother at the time is maybe 18 if he's four years older. Uh, so imagining you're at home, maybe your brothers are off at school or doing whatever they're doing. Um, just can you paint that picture a little more for us and, and obviously how that affected your life? Yeah, you know, um, like I said, we are a really tight family, you know, and I'm not going to bring religion into this, but, you know, we are religious. Um, and my father was definitely the, the patriarch and kind of the, the, you know, the father figure of our family. And so he got sick probably when I was uh, maybe 12 and a half, 13. And um, I definitely uh, was there through it all. You know, um, both my brothers were away at college, so which left my mother and myself at home. Um, and, you know, there was, it, I think it made me grow up uh, fairly quickly, you know, when I would come home right after school and study so I could help my mom and help my father. Uh, you know, towards the end, my mom wasn't strong enough to be able to care for my father. So I was the one that would have to carry him upstairs and, you know, bring him, you know, into the, to the hospital and put him in the wheelchairs and, you know, be with him while he was uh, sick, I guess you can say. So as a young man, I think it was a uh, not a great situation to be in, um, but uh, definitely uh, impacted our family in a major way. So you you sort of have this real life adversity. People talk about going through adversity, but you actually are are really seeing some things that a lot of fourteen year olds don't see. Um, and so you grew up. Did it change you at all as far as how you interacted in high school, um, or were you pretty much the same kid that you were before all that started to happen? Um. You know, I think uh, my mom did a good job at trying to keep things as stable and normal as possible. And I definitely focused a lot on sports and academics, maybe too much, you know, maybe a little bit in an obsessive way. I wasn't the smartest kid in the world, um, but I definitely, uh, you know, wasn't a, I definitely focused on that. You know, I could have gone the other direction, you know, as a young kid, you, you, you could go into, you know, I don't know, you know, drugs and alcohol and, you know, skip school and, and not focus on those things. But I really think that uh, because of the community that we lived in, I definitely relied a lot on my teammates, on my school friends, on my family, on my brothers and my mom, you know, the, the Jewish community, they all kind of, they all reached out and they embraced us and they helped uh, me focus on turning the negative into the positive. And, and they're the ones that kind of reinforce the values that, uh, you know, I needed at that time in my life and helped me not feel as isolated and alone as a 14 year old kid. You mentioned values. What sort of values did mom and dad impart on you from a young age? Like what were the things that were the, the uh, sort of foundation of your family? And you said you had a close knit family. Like what are the things that maybe you and your brothers have 
that are similar that are just family values? Um, I think being selfless, uh, being a leader, being a teacher, being a member of the community, um, uh, all those things are kind of the values, you know, my parents instilled in me. Um, and I think those are the same values that helped me in my uh, playing career, in my uh, professional life, my business life. I think, you know, those are the ones that have stuck with me through the years and the ones that I keep, that I rely on and the ones that I fall back on, you know, in, in dark times, I guess you can say. So you take this rambunctious kid and you funnel him into sports and into academics and uh, it sounds like you were excelling at that in, in high school. Um, or maybe not, uh, or is that just sort of humble? I was trying to, excel. I was trying to excel at them. I definitely excelled at soccer. That's for sure. I mean, it, it became a, a passion of mine and, uh, you know, I just, it was a kind of a, a, a cathartic distraction from the reality of my situation at the time. So, uh, like I said, whatever I could do to continue feeling like a normal kid, um, and, you know, but I was involved in, you know, drama and I was, you know, with, you know, class council and, you know, um, I, you know, did tried to do some, uh, philanthropic work, you know, back in the day, back in the day, there wasn't that many things out there, but, you know, walk for the arts and help the school library, you know, things like those things. Um, and I think it, it gave me quickly gave me a perspective on what's important and what's not important. None of my friends that I can remember had a parent pass away. So like I was the only one of all my friends that I knew of that had a, a father or a parent die. So, um, you know, you don't want to be that kid really. So you just kind of want to fit in. You want to be normal. Yeah. I was just going to ask a follow up to that. If, if you could talk to somebody and maybe you have in the past that is going through something similar, uh, as a kid, what would be the advice? What would be the thoughts for, for that kid? Um, I would, I would tell them, well, I, I, in hindsight, there are probably some things I, I would have done. You know, I think I've, I could have done a better job um, being open and maybe talking to a professional about what I was going through. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's, I just kind of – I didn't know any different. My mom didn't know any different. I mean she was in her 40s, you know, like, you know, with three kids and her, her, her husband passes away. Like no one really knows – what to do at that time. Um, so you can't place blame on anyone in that sense. Uh, but I would, I would definitely say, you know, try to, try to focus on the things that, you know, excite you, um, you know, surround yourself with family and friends, you know, stay positive. Um, try to keep a normal lifestyle, even though your life isn't that normal, you know, but find the groups that, you know, make sense to you and, and get involved and stay active, stay busy, um, and, and talk about it you know, definitely talk about it. Um, I didn't, I don't think I necessarily talked about it, uh, as much as I should at the time. And you mentioned religion sort of right off the bat. You said we grew up in a conservative Jewish household and the Jewish community really helped support you at that point in your life. Is there a questioning of religion of God? I mean, when something bad happens at a young age, I, I would imagine there's some of that. How did you handle that? And how did you interpret that at that moment? Well, I, you know, um, for those who are listening, uh, you know, one of the beautiful things about um, the being Jewish is uh, there's kind of these, I guess, uh, 
there's a framework set for when bad things like this happen. Um, there's something we call minion, which is kind of a, a prayer that you can go to every night. So for the year following my father's death, you kind of go to minion, which is a support group, religiously, you know, oriented support group. Um, and so that was comforting. Uh, at the time. So that was one way that you could kind of stay involved. And there's something they call when you sit Shiva, which is for seven days after the death of a parent, you know, you sit Shiva in your home where people come and visit you and they bring food. It's kind of like an extended wake or uh, something along those lines and, and for other religions. So that whole process was, you know, it's there for a reason. And it's so you're not, uh, the shock of something like this isn't, isn't as harsh, I guess, on, on the family. Um, so that was comforting at that time. But you know, when everyone goes away and when gets back to your life, you're still left kind of alone and going through these things. Um, and uh, so, but yeah, I, I, I can't say religion. I can't say the religion and God gave me comfort, but the community and the people around me who I was familiar with comforted me. If that makes sense, I definitely lost a little bit of faith in religion you know like you always think why me you know it doesn't make sense this is just a horrible thing if there was a god he wouldn't be doing this to me uh and then as time passed on and you get older you reflect and you know it, you know things happen to people uh i don't think it would have happened to someone like me or my family if we wouldn't weren't strong enough to handle it sure that's great perspective i want to go back to soccer so uh yeah. soccer you're, feel, play, you're playing goal Soccer. It's got really deep, really yeah, quick. That, that's, let's let's. Uh, it's called Religion. Beyond the Surface, but it's really about Beyond the Playing Surface. So we'll we'll go back to soccer and we'll brighten brighten it up a little bit. So you're, you're playing goalie, um, high school team. Uh, it sounds like you were pretty good at, at goalie. Did you ever play out? Did you ever play forward? Did you ever want to play out? Uh, what was it like for you as a goalie? And talk about your high school uh, soccer experience. Yeah, well, so I was kind of like always the biggest kid. So like I hit puberty way too early. I had a full mustache by the age of 13. So I was the biggest, the tallest kid. And so he stuck me in goal. And so I was really good for a really long time. And then everyone caught up to me. And then I was kind of just okay. Um, but at that point, I had enough experience and, uh, you know, in the goals where, you know, I definitely excelled um, in and around my teammates. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, I I, I love goalkeeper. I love the um, I, I love the pressure of it. You know, you, you're either the hero or the goat. You know, people love you or they hate you. You know, you, you can stay dormant for 89 minutes and then all of a sudden you have to make a a, a save. You know, to save the game um, and be on your you know at your best. So the, the focus and the dedication um, and the specifics of the goalkeeper position, you know, I like that. I like that. I, I thrived off of that, you know, those moments. Um, and I think that's what just kept me going. Um, you know, you know, you, you love winning and, you know, obviously losing, you feel it's a, a partly your fault. Uh, but that part of the game is what I love. You like I love you like the spotlight, the pressure, the idea that you're going to have an impact. Uh, and maybe that goes back, you mentioned the word leader uh, earlier in selflessness. Uh, you're, you're in a position at goalie to be serving others um, and, and making an impact. And, you know, goalies have to bark out orders. They have to communicate. Um, so all of that stuff, I think, uh, I think probably comes, comes to the forefront for you at goalie. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, go I think goalkeepers in general tend to be 
good leaders uh, on and off the field. You know, I don't know if if you look in higher, if you look in the soccer world, and you know some of the best coaches in the world, some of the best um, people in, in high level soccer positions are goalkeepers or have been a f- former goalkeepers, which is interesting. I mean, if you want to look at it, there's probably a lot of people from all positions that are you know, you know, in high positions that were were players, but goalkeepers for some reason, you know. You know, we do the dirty work, you know, um, you know, we're, we're willing to do this thankless job that no one else really wants to do. We're always off on the side of the field training by ourselves with a special specialized coach. Um, and uh, we're willing to sacrifice our bodies for the good of the team. You know, there's uh, you know, there's something to be said about that. And, you know, great leaders are willing to sacrifice themselves for the for the good of the team. So you you play in high school what what leads to you playing collegiately and, and just take me a little bit further in your soccer career so I did really well in high school and uh you know never really you know I I had wanted to play in college uh, I, I definitely applied to a lot of division one uh college soccer schools recruited heavily um and then for some reason it uh didn't work out you know for me I applied to you know you know my I applied early to Brown University coach Trevor Adair Still can't stand the guy because uh, he said I was basically in, and then uh, literally, like basically, uh, I don't know, a couple months before, you know, he basically told me I was in. So I was like, cool. I didn't. I literally did not apply to any other schools. I was a little uh, naive when it came to soccer. You know, I didn't play club soccer. I played town soccer. You know, I wasn't. I didn't. I just for some reason I didn't know the soccer world as well as I should have. And uh, you know, he said I was going to get in, and then he recruited another goalie that was going to start before me, and I didn't necessarily want to be a backup for four years. So I filled out the common application to all the colleges and uh, sent it in, and uh, came across Vassar College, which is kind of like the poor man's Brown University. <laughs> the coach is going to hate me for saying that, but. Uh, Coach Andy Jennings, he's still there today. I'm still very good, close friends with him. Uh, he, you know, he took a chance on me, and uh, I came in, and I uh, ended up, you know, starting and and playing all four years at uh, Vassar College. And you mentioned sort of goalies being off on the side, and uh, you mentioned in some ways they have to be natural leaders, but it's very rare you see a goalie wearing the captain's armband in soccer. It's very rare. Let's just use hockey as an example. It's very rare that a hockey goal. I don't even think they're allowed to be captains in hockey. Um, and in both of those sports, captainship really matters. Like there are some sports where it doesn't matter, but in both hockey and soccer, like who, who has that voice or that, uh, leadership in the locker room really does matter. Um, what was that like for you in college playing at that level? I'm assuming you're one of the better players on the team, um, from a leadership standpoint and integrating with, uh, the rest of the team. Well, I think like one of the unique realities of like being a goalkeeper is that like, you can save the game, but it's almost impossible for you to like win the game alone. You know, but you know, as a goalkeeper, you can bring out the best in other people. So as you know, you sit in the back of you know ten players, and you are seeing the entire field and the way the game was played. So I think um, I had a sort of a quiet confidence. I had a good leadership capabilities. I was the captain for my uh, junior and senior year at uh, Vassar. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's in the professional leagues, it's, uh, you know, college, I think goalkeepers are sometimes captains more than you see in, in professional leagues. Um, but like, we're willing to do whatever it takes on the field, you know, to, to get everyone else to play their best, you know, we're the ones yelling, we're the ones, you know, you know, orchestrating the defense where, you know, we're the ones that distributed from the back to start the offense, you know, in, in, you know, a completely 
self, uh, you know, a completely biased opinion. You know, the, the offense starts right at, at at defense with the goalkeeper, and uh, you know, I felt that way, and I felt I did have a, a big impact in the game in that sense. That idea of whatever it takes, uh, just that those three words, whatever it takes, is something that I hear so often from people who are elite at what they do. Um, mm. And I think people that, I don't want to say are not elite because that just sounds like they're not special, um, but I, I think people from the outside looking in, especially in, in sports or in entertainment or in sort of high-profile jobs, which are super competitive, I don't think they can really grasp that concept of doing whatever it takes. Um, can you speak on that a little bit? Uh, and you can even get into maybe more uh, some other uh, stops along the way, but it sounds like that started in goalie where I'm going to do whatever it takes to stop the ball. Uh, but what does whatever it takes mean to you? Um, whatever it takes means to me, like, listen, you know, we're like I said, we're able to kind of bring out the best in the 10 players and we can be yelling at you and swearing at you because you made a mistake one second, yet we're praising you the next second because of something, you know, brilliant that you did. So by managing the players on the field, that's, you know, one thing that, you know, I felt comfortable doing, you know, we communicate clearly, you know, we in, in, in like a timely fashion as a goalkeeper. That's one thing you have to be very good at is communication. Um, and so it's critical to be a good communicator. And obviously that's something that you take in, in all of your life's work. Um, great, great leaders have the ability to, you know, develop their communication skills. I think that's important in, in, in soccer and sports and in business. So, and like goalkeepers, like we always have your back. Like, you know, we're the last one there. Like we're always going to be there. We're always going to do what it takes to, you know, we'll save it with our face. You know, we'll come out and, you know, you know, slide tackle you. We'll like Donna Cross come out and jump and, you know, stick our knee in your back and punch the ball. Like, you know, we'll, we'll take the brunt of the force. And not only that, if we lose, we're pretty much sometimes we'll the ones that takes the blame often. Uh, if we win, no one really talks about the goalkeepers. They talk about the goal scorers. So it's, it's little, sometimes it's a thankless job. You know, sometimes it's a wonderful job. Uh, and then sometimes when it comes down to penalty kicks, look, you know, it's like 1v1. You're the goalkeeper. It's all you. And those are the moments that, you know, you – you, you, you thrive on it. You know, we're the ones on the field. We're the ones that we're the only ones that can use our hands. You know, that's a gift. That's a, something we should take advantage of. Um, so I never really had the, the drive to play on the field. I had good foot skills and I was in a, I played goalkeeper in a unique time in the sport when they, when they changed the rule where you couldn't pass back the ball. You used to be able to pass the ball back to goalkeeper and a goalkeeper could kick it, pick it up. I played both when that was a rule and when that was not a rule. So I happened to be good at my feet. So when they changed the rule, I was a better, I was one of the better goalkeepers because I did have the foot skills. So I definitely used that to my advantage. Um, I was quick. I'm not the tallest guy in the world. I got chipped all the time. That was my weak spot. Um, but I could come off the line and you know, you know, play almost like a sweeper, keeper type role sometimes. And fr from a mental perspective, did you do anything to prepare yourself for the game? Any routines, any strategies that you implemented to perform? Yes. So when I was probably 16 or 17, I went to a goalkeeper camp up in Maine uh, by a guy by the name of Shep Messing and Roy Messing, um, famous goalkeepers. Shep Messing played for the Cosmos back in the day. And I took my first sports psychology session. They brought in a sports psychologist, and this was completely novel to me i didn't even know something like that existed and basically what they did was they took us through visualization techniques um where 
you know, for me, I got into a routine where not only would I physically warm up and go through the physical warm-ups that a goalkeeper does, you know, you know, you know, take shots, left, right, corners, you know, do some punts, throws, whatever. But then I did that mentally as well. So I would literally sit down, sit on the bus ride. If it was a long bus ride, I'd sit there and I'd literally go through the exact same warm-up that I would be going through physically, but I did it in my mind. And, um, you know, I would envision myself diving to the right, diving to the left, low to the left, low to the right, you know, scooping up, coming out for breakaways, punching the ball, like all these things I would visualize um, before games. And it became almost uh, obsessive, I guess you could say. Goalkeepers are known to be a little bit crazy, a little bit obsessive. But I got in a routine where I needed like 30 minutes of quiet time before I even started to do my physical warm up. And that's when I would mentally prepare for the game and that was essential like if we arrived at a game late and you know through the bus was late or we didn't have time to warm i was like freaking out you know like oh my god i don't have enough time to like mentally prepare for this and it was it was a nightmare yeah yeah uh, so visualization is obviously a, a tool in in sort of the sports psychology toolbox uh, one of the cool things about visualization is your mind doesn't really know the difference between whether you're physically going through something or mentally going through it so we call those mental reps because you're actually getting your mind extra reps. When people are injured, it's a great thing for them to do because they're limited on what they can do physically, but they can get some mental reps and see it. And that's why a lot of coaches like watching film because they can actually see it and, and you're processing that information in your brain. Um, the obsessive part is a story for another day. And if, if we were working together, I would get into how we make you still adaptable and not a slave to the visualization. Um, but that's a story for another day. Okay. Yeah. I heard it. But you know, I got to, it got to a point where I think it was a little bit um, pro prohibitive in my performance, you know, like I got to a point where like it was the left sock first, right sock first, left glove, right glove, you know, I had to do like 20 dives to the right and 20 to the left. If, and if I didn't do that, it was like thrown off for the game. So it definitely got to a point where I needed, you know, my coach thought I was nuts. I was playing well, so he almost didn't like he didn't mention it really. So uh, he didn't bring it to my attention, but it definitely got into got in the way sometimes. Yeah, for me, I work with a lot of golfers, and golfers can be like that as well. Um, and there's a difference between superstition and routine. Superstition is I have to do this to be successful, and this is what's going to cause me to be successful. Whereas routine is just setting yourself to be the best that you can, but you're never a slave to the routine. So uh, I can still perform even without the routine, but no, this is what I'd like to do to get ready. But uh, that's not what's causing me to perform. It's just setting the table, uh, but I can still do everything without it. So I think a lot of athletes go towards superstition. And when I work with them, I try to shift them closer to routine and let them understand like, no, this is like, you can still play without stretching. Um, but the stretching is going to help you get loose and get ready. Like if we just drop the ball out, you can save a, a soccer ball. You know how to do that, but we'd like to get you warmed up. So I think there's a, a important delineation there. There, um, you, you decided to play professionally. So what caused you to take that route, um, and, and play professionally after college? To, to be honest, I didn't really have, um, I didn't think I was good enough to play professional soccer, uh, and I had majored in pre-med biology, um, and I had a, a, a minor in marine biology. Um, so after college, I moved to Hawaii, because I'm like, a lot of water, I'm bound to find a job in Hawaii. I didn't, and I ended up like cleaning toilets and making beds in a youth hostel. But they, this was back in the day, pre-MLS, well, just when MLS was starting, 95, 96. And uh, there was a advertisement for an open tryout for a team called the Hawaii Tsunami, which played in the USISL back in the day. 
Um, and lucky for me, like all, I think it was just, it was just like a, a PR stunt for the team to get people to come down and try out. So I went down and tried out as a, just tried out cause I was there and I had nothing to do. And I, I, I made the team as a backup goalkeeper, not the starting goalkeeper. And I was lucky because that was the time when all the great players in the USISL were getting drafted to the MLS. So there's a couple opening, you know, openings around for, for players like me who are, who are good, above average. You know, we weren't going to make it crazy or to Europe or play whatever. But then I was like, all right, screw, screw med school. Like, you know, screw marine biology. I'm going to be a professional soccer player. So from 1996 to 2001, um, I played professional soccer. So I played for the Hawaii Tsunami. Um, I played for the Cape Cod Crusaders uh, here in uh, the East Coast of Massachusetts. Um, and then I traveled to Zimbabwe, and I played for the Highlanders Football Club in the Zimbabwe Premier League, which was crazy. <laughs> right. Time out, time out. So there's a couple more pieces to this. So you graduate from Vassar with this great degree. And you're like, all right, I'm going to go move to Hawaii because there's a lot of water and I can study. But but I would imagine there's also other reasons to go to Hawaii, right? Like you're coming, you know, you grew up in the nor Northeast and you're going to Hawaii. I've been to Hawaii. It's not a bad place to be when you're 22 years old or 42 years old or 62 years old or 82 years old. Um, but are you like a risk taker? Are you someone who's like, yeah, let's go to Hawaii? Because I'm hearing like, let's go to Hawaii. All right, yeah, let's try out for the soccer team. Oh, now like, oh, let's go play in... USL. Oh, wait, let's go to Zimbabwe. Like, walk me through the thought process of those and sort of the mechanics of that thought process. Yeah, I guess, I, I guess in, in hindsight, I was a risk taker and looking at some of the things that I've done since then. Yeah, I'm definitely risk taker. Maybe I, I thrived on those, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and seeing what happens. Um, as a graduation present um, from my family after college, I got a, a trip around the world. Um, so I got to travel. I traveled for about six months, um, you know, all over the world. And I ended in Hawaii. And that's kind of I just stayed there. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that, like you said, it's not a, not a bad place to end up. And, um, so I, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from. Um, are your brothers, you know, are your brothers like that? Cause you just told me your parents gave you that you're saying no, no, they, I'm, I, I, they, they, they are uh, not in a bad way, but you know, my brother's a chiropractor. He's got a, a wife and two kids. My older brother salesman, he's got, you know, uh, he's got two kids, but you know, they're, they still live in Massachusetts, close to where they grew up, um, and uh, they, they haven't done as much of risk-taking, I guess you can say, as I have. Got it. So you're playing, I want to go to Zimbabwe. So you, you're going to Zimbabwe to go play soccer. Um, <laughs> what was that like? It was, it cha literally changed my life forever. That was one of the moments that changed my life forever. Uh, I guess, you know, since... Uh, as the story goes, you know, there's the team, the Highlanders football club, there's a coach, uh, Bobby Clark, um, who was a, uh, Scottish national team goalkeeper, uh, Dartmouth college coach. He took a sabbatical year and, and coached for the Highlanders and he brought over Andrew Shue, who was, uh, uh, you know, he was on the show Melrose play. So he was kind of the first white U S based American player to go to Africa to play for the Highlanders. And since then, I think it was late 80s, a steady stream of white players ended up going to Africa to play and Zimbabwe to play. So one of my close friends um, who was playing for the Cape Cod Crusaders, he went over to play um, and I followed him over there. And, um, you know, they, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of, uh, I guess they, they call it juju in, in Africa. It's like good luck or bad luck. 
back to your kind of superstition type thing. But the year that Andrew Shue went there, they won the championship. So they kind of thought they needed at least one white person on the team to win the championship from that point on. So I was kind of like the white guy, um, which was – I was the white Jewish guy in Zimbabwe, which I was like a Martian landing in a place that no one even knew what was going on. I, did, I was a vegetarian at the time. They thought I was like a nutcase. Uh, it was a really fun experience. Um, but for me, playing in the U.S., I, I don't know. I needed to – as a professional soccer player in the USISL, let's be honest, like you're getting paid, but it's not paid. You know, it's a lot of guys, it's their second job. You're coaching during the day, you're playing at night. It's, you know, um, but 100 people, 200, maybe 1,000 people at a game. But like for me, I wanted that professional feeling. Like I wanted to feel like it, what was it like to be a professional? And Zimbabwe was a place and the level where I felt I could do that. We got 50,000 people a game. Um, you know, people saved up their entire, you know, salary all week just so they could buy a ticket to come to the game that weekend. The Highlanders, we were the, the team of the people, you know, and it was just their life. It was all they believed in. So to be able to go there and play for this team was an epic experience. Like literally, I'm, when I say I was one of two white people on the team in a league of 18 teams there was no other white people playing so that to put yourself in that situation and i'm not making this like a a racial thing but it was just an interesting situation there were no white people playing in the zimbabwe premier league there was two people and i was one of them so to have that experience uh, was interesting um walk around town people knew who you were you know it was a, a fun exciting experience for me and my buddy uh, who i was playing with well i'll talk about like the racial component because it is i think worth mentioning like i I grew up in a suburb similar to what you grew up, you know, in Massachusetts. And so, like, yeah, we had diversity in our schools, but I never felt like I was a minority. Um, and then I went to Syracuse University where I didn't feel like I was a minority, but I minored in African-American studies. And I remember being in a classroom where I was the minority as a white heterosexual male. And <laughs> I thought that experience, everyone should go through that experience at some point in their life. That feeling of like, should I really say that? What happens if I say that? How, like, just being more aware of how you're processing information, how you're seeing others, and what's going on in that processing, I think is so valuable. And I think part of why we have hate in this world is because of the segregation. And when we don't get to feel that sort of uncomfortableness or, uncertainty or in I don't, I'm going to use the word insecurity but um I think those feelings are so amazing and to your point you said that this was a life-changing experience I'd imagine because it was just a growth experience for you as a human as a soccer player as a adult like there's so many things that you probably could tug on with that yeah and and and, and it was uh the culture uh you know wasn't it's not a wealthy community so I it was an interesting because I was living with a white Jewish family in Zimbabwe yet I was playing with the team so you know who are they're you know they're not wealthy people we got 25 bucks if we won 15 bucks if we tied and like three dollars if we lost right so but if we won five games in a row like these you know these guys would come in with like full leather suits you know like you know you know we're living on the equator and they're wearing you know so like that was just 
I didn't play for the money. I played for the experience, obviously. Uh, but it was the things that I was experiencing were something that was crazy. Like the, the, the night before home games, they'd send all the whole team to a little house in the middle of the forest and the, the bush just so they could keep an eye on us, make sure we weren't doing funky things. And they'd give us a meal and everyone had their chores when they arrived up there, you know, was to make the beds or boil the water. Mine was sacrifice the goat. So like, what? here I am. I, <laughs> So here I am up there. They're like, uh, you get to kill the goat. And so there was a witch doctor. The doctor for the team was a witch doctor. And so we'd go out. He picked a goat and he picked the one that looked the closest to the team emblem with black and white. And so we slit the goat's neck and collected the blood and sprinkled the blood all around the house. And then we chopped up the goat and cooked it on the grill and everyone ate it. And like, that was my job. It was like, and then, you know, and then you go through this whole process where they call it the Black Sea. So you all line up, like 22 African guys and me lined up naked in a line to go into the, and you, you cover yourself in this Black Sea and the, the witch doctor's putting these oils on you. You smoke this big tobacco pipe and you blow the smoke on the parts of your body that you want to perform well, so your hands or your feet. And then it was, and then they take your equipment and they bless your equipment. It was just wacky stuff. But we did it at home and we did it on the road. Like we'd be in the hotel rooms, like doing these crazy ceremonies. And it was just, it was nuts. So stuff, uh, you know, like you, you can't even, you just think it's a joke, but it's not, it really happened. It's, it's taking, they're taking the superstition thing to a whole nother level there. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they'd have these doctors walk the field and, you know, it was a competition between the witch doctors, like who had to get got on the field to last. Cause they didn't want to put a curse on the field and, and they would believe in that stuff. It was nuts. Unreal. So you're in Zimbabwe, you're, you're, just having this amazing experience on on so many different levels what's what's next for you after that well um so i played there for a season um i wasn't a starting goalkeeper i played in all the reserve games but the, even the reserve games got you know 15 you know 20,000 people and i sat the bench for the first team um so but then cape cod crusaders came around calling again so i came back to play in the year 2000 um, played, had a great season with the Crusaders, um, and then kind of realized, you know, I wasn't giving the next, you know, uh, Tony Miola at the time, or so I kind of decided I needed to transition into a different aspect. Um, you know, all the time I was coaching at Fairleigh Dickinson University, which is a, a mid-level Division One college in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, we made it to the uh, Elite Eight, you know, and uh, when I was coaching there, so that was an experience. And then uh, I was kind of unemployed. Uh, in between life choices, I guess you can say, living in New York City, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was working for a couple branding companies, doing some creative, uh, like naming new products that came out on the market. And uh, I saw the show Survivor on TV. And I'm like, that kind of looks fun. Like maybe I should make a video and send it into Survivor. So uh, that's what I did. So I. I, I, it as kind of as a joke if you think about it like it was funny because i was uh with my roommate at the time or like bored literally unemployed and bored in new york city like what do you want to do today he's like well yeah well let's make a video for survivor i was supposed to make a video for him and he was supposed to make a video for me but we, we ran out of time for him and we only had time for myself and we sent in my video and then i got picked for the show so it was pretty funny before we get into survivor because we're going to want to unpack that a little bit did you want to be a doctor? Like, yeah. were you thinking, you said you're pre-med, like when did you shift away from the idea of being a doctor? Well, I wanted to be a doctor because my dad died. That's strictly the whole reason. I'm like, hey, like I, if I can do something, if I can be a doctor and fix the world, I'm going to do it. 
but I, to be honest, I, I don't think I was smart enough to be a doctor. I took all the pre-med courses at, at Vassar. I didn't do, I did fine, but I wasn't, you know, a scholar and I wasn't being recruited by med schools. And I was kind of, uh, I was, uh, you know, they would advocate for me to choose another path, I guess you could say, at the career development office at Vassar. When I said I want to apply to med schools, they're like, maybe you should think about something else. Right, so, now, um, so now they tell you, maybe you should go to an island and be on a TV show. I'm sure that's probably what they said to you. <laughs> no, but uh, but yeah, I have a funny story about that one. Yeah, but um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so I wanted to be a doctor, and then I kind of, you know, as time got away from that, I couldn't see myself really, you know, starting to settle down and study for the MCATs to actually go back to school after I'd been playing and living in Zimbabwe. And I really, when I was in Zimbabwe, I definitely saw had the opportunity to live in another culture, see what was impacting this culture. I saw the devastation of HIV and AIDS. A lot of my teammates got sick with HIV um, and ended up kind of being ostracized from the community, kicked off the team. You know, these are national sports heroes, kids running up to them to get their autographs. And once people heard or that they were HIV positive or saw them walking into a clinic to get tested, completely shut down, completely ostracized. And this was the first time I saw how one disease was just destroying this community that I was now a part of and I had compassion and I felt horrible for these people touched by this disease. But at that time in my life, you know, I was 27 years old. I, I didn't know what I could do about it at that time. Um, things have changed since then um, after Survivor. Uh, but that was my feeling at the time. So I felt maybe I could help people by not being a doctor and do it in another way. And I was find that. So I always toggle this notion of doing well versus doing good. And is there a way that you can do really well so that you can do all kinds of good? And I think a lot of people think about just doing good, but they don't think about like, well, what if I did really well and what good can I do? And like, you know, you look at the Bill Gates of the world. Uh, I, I saw today, you know, Bono is meeting with our government. Like there's all kinds of good you can do um, if you if you do well. Um, but I think a lot of people who are do-gooders, myself included, uh, like think like, all right, I'm just going to go and I'm going to do good. But a lot of times it's sort of like, you know, feeding someone versus being able to teach a man how to fish. And it's sort of that, that analogy. It's like, well, if I do really well, maybe I can teach a bunch of people how to fish and then I can make the world better that way, um, through money. So, uh, talk to me about survivor. So for those that don't know, uh, because <laughs> I guess we're getting a little bit older now and I don't even know when the last survivor show was, but there's probably going to be people that listen to this podcast, which is unbelievable to me, who never watched it. And um, so first of all, I'll set the stage. For those that don't know, this show was like it. Like it was reality TV. It was different. Um, it was, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, like the first to really try this different than the real world uh, reality TV that um, <laughs> was going to show the human experience on a uh risky level um so if i didn't set the stage feel free to jump in but um you know talk to us about survivor and uh the experience going through that yeah i mean like you said this was back at the first ep season of survivor was 1999-2000 um and at the time there were very few reality shows like you said it was the real world i think it was like joe millionaire and like survivor 
Um, and so it was the first of its kind and it was basically a social experiment. You know, what's going to happen if we take a cross section of America and plop them on an island and take everything they're comfortable away from them, no food, no water, no sleep, and then you dangle a million dollars in front of their face. What are they going to do? How are they going to act? What's going to happen? You know, and not only that is you, you, you compete in challenges, both physical and mental challenges, and uh, you know the and you're doing this on the world stage in front of millions of viewers. I mean, 27.9 million people watch Survivor every week, and uh, those numbers were staggering at the time. It was a, a phenomenon, I guess you can say. And I was very fortunate and very lucky to be have been chosen to be on the show at that time in the kind of reality TV arc. You know, now everything's reality television. Back then, if you can imagine it, there weren't any rea- weren't many reality shows. And so you go there. Uh, what did you notice about the people that were successful? And what did you notice about maybe the people that that struggled? And really, I'd love for you to dive into the mental side of of this because obviously there's physical components that were were grueling. It is it, grueling is maybe an understatement, but talk about like the mental side of it um, and and what you saw, and then what you did. Yeah, well, I think what you might find uh, exciting, or anyone else who's into psychology, but the way you're cast on Survivor is, you know, like, you're literally, you, you interview after interview after interview, but then you're brought there, and you're, take, you're given psychological tests, physical tests, personality tests, um, and they're literally kind of trying to craft the most perfect uh, television show of, characters that are either going to like interact well together or conflict or maybe love or whatever that is. Um, so like I said, in the end, I personally believe Survivor is a game of relationships. It's how you interact with one another and how you play against one another and, and interact with that determine how well and how far you will go in the game. But on the mental side of it, I mean, it is a game that touches on every single part of you as a human being, mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental. Um, and, you know, you are, it's a game where you have to make friends with these people, yet friendships based on trust and you can't trust anyone because the whole object of the show is be the last person standing. So there are many different ways to play the game. You can be a nice guy. You can be a jerk, you know, you can be the athletic one and strong, you can be backstabbing, so you can be a man or a woman, you can be black or white, gay, straight, like there's so many different ways to play the game. Did you and that's go, what did you go with, did you go into it with a uh, with a game plan and did you stick to that game plan if you did? Yes. So I was very sci- I was very strategic about this, you know. I think it's it was important it was a it was very helpful that I was aware of myself. I was very aware of my strengths and my weaknesses. So I knew going into the game that I'm not the A-type personality, bark orders, you know, head coach type position. I was more of kind of like the assistant coach. Um, so I knew when I got out there, I had to align with people that had characteristics and um, and strengths that I did not have because that's the only way I would be able to advance in the game. So, you know, I quickly found two people on the show that I was um, – one guy was this guy named Lex. And Lex was that A-type personality. He liked to be the center of t- attention. He liked to deliver the bad news. He liked to be in control of everything. And I definitely saw that in him. Um, and I aligned with him right away because I knew that in the end um, – 
oftentimes people don't love the head coach, but they love the, the assistant coach, right? So Lex, this player, would complain to me about everyone else on the show. And everyone on the show complained to me about Lex, and I was caught there in the middle, and I was able to manipulate that information and spit it out how I wanted to, um, and that was, you know, very beneficial to me. Um, I, 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 got, I, you know, early in this conversation, we talked about those values, and I truly believe that out there on the show, Survivor, I, I tapped deeply into those values. I was selfless in a very selfish game. You know, I was able to sacrifice myself for the good of the team. There are oftentimes I wanted to win a challenge, but I knew that if I won the challenge, it may hurt my alliance. It may hurt, you know, my friendship. So I chose maybe to hold back a little bit to ensure the fact that other people may win and get that opportunity. Um, Can I tug on that a little bit? So yeah. were you being selfless because it was a value or were you being selfless because it could help you win the game? That's that's very good. Both. It was both. It was who I, you know, I part of me I had every intention to go into the game and lie and cheat and steal and do whatever I had to do to win. But uh to be honest, like when I before I left, my mom actually my mom said to me, Ethan, it's more important to come back with your dignity and self-respect than to kind of go out there and you know be the, the asshole that's gonna, you know, you know, do horrible things in order to get ahead in the game. So um, I had every intention to be that person, but it just wasn't who I was inside. And unless you're the best actor or actress in the world, there's no way you can kind of keep up the front of being someone you're not out there. Because once you take away food and you take away water and you're tired and you're hungry and you're thirsty, your true colors come into focus. And all that you're left with is your character, your values, um, your personality, and you know, that, 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 that will to survive, that very essence of the human spirit. So they strip you to your authentic self, right? Like it's your authentic self and you get stripped and brought brought to that moment. So um, talk about authenticity a little bit and how you saw that because we talk about authentic leadership a lot. Talk about what you saw from an authentic standpoint and, and how that helped you or, or just riff on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh... – you know, it's the people, some people come back from the show and like, oh my God, the editing, you know, they made me look like a bitch. I'm like, well, you really are a bitch. You just never <laughs> saw yourself on TV before. And uh, th that's the problem. And like, I think being authentic, uh, just, you know, um, I didn't know any different at the time. I think if I were to play again, or you can see now in the days, it, sometimes it looks a little bit manufactured. People play up to the camera. They're doing things just so the camera will follow them. Back then, like, you know, that wasn't a concern. People just wanted to win, you, and you kind of did what you have to do to win. And I just had to tap into the skills that I knew I was good at in order to get ahead of this game. I was very athletic. I did well at the challenges. I, I made a personal connection with every single person out there. And I get I talk about community a lot. Like, I made myself a crucial member of the community. I was crucial to everyone else's survival. So without me, they would have struggled even more. And therefore, um, oftentimes decided not to vote me off. There was always someone more important to vote me off or, or, or less valuable to vote off than myself because I was ingrained in everyone's life out there on the show, whatever that way was. If, if it was an older woman, I kind of reminded of her son. You know, if I was, you know, this dude, I was, you know, just drinking buddy at a bar. If it was this hot chick, you know, I could maybe date her after the show. There was different things that I tapped into in a connection that was unbreakable and people felt they needed me out there. How conscientious were you of doing that? How purposeful or intentional were you when, when you were cultivating those relationships? I mean, I don't want to sound like a jerk or anything, but you know, the, 
and that's what's really crazy about the show is the relationships and friendships I made were real and I truly felt for these people but there was a switch where like when the push came to shove I would have no trouble like voting them off or doing getting to a point where I needed to end the friendship on the show and um but I tried to do that in a, in a way that see the way Survivor is interesting is because not only do you have to vote these people off you have to vote them off in such a way that they like you enough or they value the way you play the game enough that when they come back, they, they vote for you to win. So like that's, you know, if you're a CEO of a, a big, you know, corporation and you have to fire someone, but like later down the road, those people that you fired are the ones that decide if they want to promote you or not. Like you got to be able to manage that in a really weird situation. So you have to vote people off in a way that they like you and respect you that when they come back, because they're the ones that, that just ultimately decide if they want to grant you the million dollars. It is interesting, and, and we're going to stay away from politics because we could go into politics, and we've already talked about religion, so we've got one strike against us, so we're going to stay off of politics. Um, but I think you, you hit on something, which is a CEO, um, a head coach, a general manager of a sports team. Um, there is value in doing things a certain way and, and doing it with a certain process that – like in, in sports, they say, oh, it's just business. Like, you know, don't take it personal. It's business. Like they cut you. It's not personal. It, you know, it, it's just business. Or like they, someone gets traded or uh, they, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen in sports and they always say, oh, it's just the business of sport. So I think we see that play out in a way in, in sport. But I think to your point, like if you know what your values are and you're authentic to those and you treat people the right way uh, and it's done with character, I do think character means out in the long run. And that's not to say you're not going to screw up. That's not going to say you're not going to make mistakes. It's not going to say you're not going to make bad decisions. But I think for all of us, we have such an obsession with greatness and you know doing whatever it takes to be great that we sometimes lose the idea of doing whatever it takes to be good um, as a human. Um, and like one of the things that I find really interested is the notion of like what's more important to you, your resume or your eulogy. Um, and I think a lot of us go toward resume because I think we think that's what we need to be building and that's our identity. But really, at the end of the day, it's it's the eulogy items. It's what's someone going to say about us when we're gone. That really matters. It's like if you were a complete jackass um, and that's all you really were throughout your life, but you made tons of money or you were famous or whatever. It's like, you know, did you really impact this world in a positive way? Maybe not. Uh, but I think if you do the eulogy items, it takes care of the resume. And I think you had a, a good base or foundation of what I'm, what's authentic to me. And then look, you have to be a little bit of a salesperson, which is what's important to them and treat them how they want to be treated, not necessarily how I want to be treated. But that also comes from a place of selflessness. But don't get it twisted. Like, it's still selfish. Like, I tell people all the time, like, I do what I do for a living purely because it gives me fulfillment. Like helping somebody gives me fulfillment and joy. So like I have a saying, I say, the people that work in the soup kitchen are the most selfish people in the, in the planet because they do it because of how it makes them feel. Like seeing yeah. someone smile makes them feel good. And they're just tapping into what they really value from a feeling standpoint. So the show in a lot of ways, I mean, I've never really thought about it this way, but you painted such a picture where it can relate to pretty much anything in life if you just inject it with like steroids and create this like science experiment of human interaction and human behavior. So um, that just must've been a fascinating experience for you. I'm curious, biggest takeaways from you uh, after you win. So 
you do have success, you win. What are the things you took with you off the island? You talked about Zimbabwe and how that shifted how you may see the world and, and your psychology. What did that experience do for you? And also talk about winning and, and what that led to for you. Yeah, well, I actually had an experience on the show where I won a reward challenge where I won these two goats, which I wasn't so happy about. But I got to take these goats into this little village of Wamba. And, and before you didn't I left, slit their throat. You didn't slit their throat, right? I did not. did not. did not. Yeah, I have this weird thing with goats, I guess you can say. Um, so, yeah, I took them into this village of Wamba. And before I left this village of Wamba, I was hanging out in the parking lot of Wamba Hospital. So all these little Kenyan children came out and they're touching my white skin and they're playing with my Jufro. You know, like they'd never seen anyone like me before. Like, And so back in the day, like you were allowed to bring one luxury item and this luxury item was something that represented you as a person it was the one item that reminded you of your life away from the game of survivor and i brought a hacky sack so a you know a little mini soccer ball so i had this luxury item with me when i said this well started playing hacky sack with all these kids we're we're smiling we're laughing we're communicating through this sport that we both love yet we're not speaking the same language and before i left this parking lot i asked one of the nurses why are all these kids just hanging out in a parking lot of a hospital and she says, well, these are all the kids that are HIV positive. So here I am again. Here I am in the middle of this game, this cutthroat game of Survivor, and I had that real-life experience. And it was at that moment I decided that if this goes my way and I win, something great happens, like I'm going to do something good with this money. Like That was my do-something. I call it my do-something moment. This is the, the moment that changed my life forever. Um, Ethan, real and, quick, real quick, uh, how far in the game were you at this point where you now have purpose added to it? Because uh, I think before that point, it's probably passion, it's excitement, it's experience, but now you add purpose to it. How far into the game were you when you have that moment? Probably day, the game is 39 days, and I would say this is probably day 30, so it was close to the end of the game. And it was a perfect timing for me to give me that last push of like, if I win this thing, like, I, I have purpose now. Like, I had friends that have HIV from playing in Zimbabwe in 1999. Here I am in the middle of the game of Survivor in 2002 on national television. Um, again, touched by HIV, and 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 I have this opportunity, I have this platform, I have this the ability to to create change in this world. You know, it, it wasn't formulated at the time in my brain, but um, it's funny because that the last the final tribal council when there's only two people left, that's when everyone comes back and they can ask you questions. They're the they're the jury, and that guy Lex, my good friend Lex, stands up. He's like, if you win, if I vote for you to get this one million dollars, what's the first selfless thing you're going to do with this money? And I said there, like right there on the spot, like I haven't eaten in 39 days. I smell like a horse. I got like furry sweaters all over my teeth. Um, I said, I'm going to use this money to do something with kids and soccer to help save lives. Um, so I get back from the show. I got 15 minutes of fame, which is probably up after this podcast. Um, and then I got, uh, you know, I got a million bucks in my pocket. And that's when I teamed up with some of my uh, closest friends, the guys that I played with in Africa, guy Kirk Friedrich, Tommy Clark, Matembe and Lovu. And that's when we created this organization called Grassroots Soccer. And uh, it's kind of put me on a trajectory that, you know, I'm super proud of. Do you think that the purpose, uh, if you didn't have that purpose and that light bulb go off, you still would have won? Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I, I think I would have. Yeah, I was doing. Yeah, I had you a good had thing. It. You had it in the so bag. I had it. Yeah. I don't know if I had it in the bag, but um, but I was making smart choices and I, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and the, the connections and re relationships I was making uh, were were good for me. So the purpose part really 
uh, starts leveraging itself after the fact. Um, so what do you do with grassroots soccer and, and talk about that experience a little bit? Cause you just lit up when you sort of brought that up and, uh, smiled and, and sort of, I could tell it's a, it's a passion project for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, and it's wonderful, like to, to, to be a, per, you know, at like, and I'm not like, it's, I obviously I love talking about myself, but it's weird talking about myself. But at that time when you came off the show survivor, it was it was a big, it was a big deal. It's not like winning the show today. We, that was season three. We're in season 35 this year, past year. So the show's still going, but when it was something new. So like I was, had a very big opportunity to do something big because I was everywhere and people would show up where I was, or they'd ask me to speak or go to this or go to that or playing a celebrity soccer game, whatever. So all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to really, you know, uh, relay some important information that you know people could listen to. So grassroots soccer, grassroots soccer, um, we use the power of soccer in the fight against HIV and AIDS, and we help adolescent youth uh, make healthier decisions in life, and we do that through the sport of soccer. And the way they do, we do that is we train professional soccer players, coaches, and peer leaders in the community about you know health, and then we send them into the classroom to teach the youth on how to make healthier decisions in life. And like we just, right in 2003, right after Iran, we went back to Zimbabwe and we started, you know, trying to figure this out. And it's in seven schools in Zimbabwe. And since then, uh, we've grown into a great organization. We're in 50 countries now. We've graduated 1.9 million kids from the program. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's one of the, a, a great program. Can you give it a, a little more of a plug? Let us know where can we find out more about it so people can give all their money and time and whatever else uh this is uh, we'll, we'll call this since this podcast doesn't have advertising we'll use this time now to let you be like if you want to do a commercial for it um and where people can find it like you know i'll, I'll give you let's call it a 30 second clip right here right now like here's your commercial and and we'll get we'll get everyone to go over there and and, and donate or however they can help you yeah, tell, you it, tell me for me, you know, it's it's all about uh, you know finding something that makes me happy, and like you said, it's pretty selfish. You know, like to make happiness real for others is one of the greatest gifts in the world, and you know, focusing on the plight of another human being kind of literally helps you heal. It, it gives you that rush, it gives you that drive. So for me, it's a little bit selfish, but you know, grassroots soccer. You can go to grassrootsoccer.org. Um, I'm very fortunate uh, to have been working with you know my three other co-founders. I definitely cannot take any of the credit for creating something like this um, because we all work together and to, to make it into the organization that is today. But yeah, if anyone's excited uh, about the work that we do and using soccer to deliver health interventions around the world, we'd love for you to, you know, get involved. Uh, we have wonderful high school, college campaigns uh, here in the United States, awareness campaigns. So we'd love anyone to get involved. Grassrootsoccer.org. Check it out. That's a pretty good commercial. I think you went over there 30 seconds, but uh, it, it did the job. I, I want to pull on one other thing that you mentioned, which is fame. Um, so you come back from this show. Before the show, other than people um, who watch minor major league soccer uh, in, in Zimbabwe and in Hawaii and in, in Cape Cod, uh, you're a pretty anonymous dude. Uh, and, and now you come back and you're probably on doing TV interviews. You're broadcasted everywhere. Can you just give people insight into what it's like to go from being anonymous to being famous? It's um, I, I definitely wasn't prepared for it. 
uh, it's one of those things where you kind of you get wrapped up into the whole vortex of it and you just you know say yes to everything because you're like this is going to end and this is awesome right now so let's have as much fun and and do as much as I can with this platform as, as possible uh, and like listen uh, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that like celebrity it's a bit ridiculous but it's currency you know and I wanted to use this currency to do the most that I possibly could um, in this world. And for me, that was promoting grassroots soccer and promoting the fact that, you know, we can help save thousands and millions of kids through the sport of soccer. You know, soccer is my life's work. It's my passion. I was a player, a coach, I was an, a fan. And I just know that, uh, you know, all the kids out there that play soccer, you know, very few of them are going to end up being professionals. So it's nice to know that you can use the sport of soccer um, off the field as well and make a huge impact, just as big an impact as when you're playing on the field. So grassroots soccer is a big part of your purpose and you're, you're using that and leveraging your fame and celebrity for that. But what does one do when they come back from uh, that experience? And especially someone who at the time of going into it, like you, you didn't necessarily have a job to come back to. Um, what did you do after the fact and what were sort of the next steps along the way for yourself? Well, lucky for me that, uh, like I said, you know, I had the skill of having played soccer. So I was lucky enough to start doing some like commentating. You know, I worked for the LA Galaxy. I worked for MLS, ESPN. I hosted a show on Fox Soccer Channel, Madison Square Garden Network, you know, that type of stuff. Um, so that kind of became my job, I guess, kind of being in front of the camera, promoting the game of soccer and being an advocate for the sport, uh, helping grow the sport in the United States, um, doing as much as I could to help grow grassroots soccer. And that just kind of led into a, you know, a lot of other things. But grassroots soccer kind of became, like I said, um, my platform. It became my passion. I put you know, a lot of energy into that in addition to doing a lot of fun other stuff. Um, you know, like being a judge for the Miss Universe pageant, you know, that stuff comes along with it too. <laughs> there was a kid wearing a shirt, uh, the other day that it said something along the lines of that doesn't suck. And, uh, I just saw him and I was working with him and I said, yeah, that doesn't suck. Tell me about the shirt. Uh, when I think of judging the Miss Universe pageant, I think of that doesn't suck. Um, so you got to have all these other experiences and, um, you know, really incredible experiences. And it was just, uh, you know, I, I got to go on other TV shows. I was on the amazing race. I was on fear factor. I was on eco challenge. You know, I did, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, and I was always, uh, I always just said yes, because I kept feeling it was going to end. You know, I kept feeling like, you know, I think I had a perfect taste of of what it was like to like, I could never imagine what it's like to be a real celebrity. Like I don't call myself a celebrity. I don't think myself as a celebrity, but like, you know, those big, it must, cause for the first, you know, six weeks or a month after the show, it was nuts. Like you couldn't walk anywhere. You couldn't do anything. I lived in New York city. So when I had a big, you know, big Afro and it was, everyone could notice me and it was, it was crazy. Amos was there for that, you know, and my friend Amos McGee. Um, but he was, he was witnessing that, you know, he was, I called him the deflector collector because everyone would just come up to me and I just deflect them and he'd like collect them, all the, all the hot chicks and stuff. So that was, <laughs> Good time to be uh, Amos right then. Yeah. Um, so I want to pull on that a little, which is, so I think, you know, with social media, with um, everything that's out there, heck, I'm doing a podcast and I, I don't, I, you know, I never thought I'd be in radio or TV, like, but I start a podcast on my own. 
how do you balance branding and like marketing with this idea of like, yeah, I don't really aspire to be a celebrity. Um, Cause I know that's something I struggle with in my space, which is like, I'm not that special. Like, uh, you know, I learn a lot, I read a lot, I get to interact with interesting people. I think I'm competent at what I do. Um, but like, uh, you know, I think I'm probably gonna learn from you. Uh, if I If we spoke for an hour, I'm gonna learn a ton from you and maybe you'll take away one or two things from me, but like, how did you balance sort of the humility that maybe you were raised with um, and sort of this this desire to not necessarily go towards celebrity with the fact that like, well, now you're a brand, Ethan, and now, no, we need you to do this interview. And now like, yeah, like you can make this appearance and we're gonna pay you to just be there and like stand. Can you just pull on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it was always definitely a little bit strange for me, exactly what you're saying, to be paid to show up. Like, I'm just, like, I'm not that special. So I hate to keep bringing it back grassroots soccer or philanthropy or charity, but to have that side of it, it gave me purpose to my celebrity, where I will show up and do this if you let me talk about grassroots soccer. Um, I will come, you know, coach this camp if uh, all the, you know, the registration fees will go to cancer research. So for me, it was, it, that's how I was able to balance it. And that how I made purpose out of kind of this gift that I was given, um, of this reality show win. Um, and so and that is kind of, I think how I, I rationalized it all, you know, trust me, there were times where I showed up strictly for myself because it was really fun and I got to travel. I got to see something that I wasn't you know, normal to do or cut the lines at Disney World. Like I'd take advantage of that stuff, you know, get a free meal at this restaurant because they recognize me. Sure, I'll take it. Um, who wouldn't? But uh, I think, you know, the other stuff, it definitely gave me purpose and meaning to be able to show up at a place and have something like grassroots soccer to be able to talk about, support, promote and ask for money. I wonder if or, that's where a lot of famous people go awry, which is when they lose, if they don't have a purpose. So um, we see it with celebrities all the time where, you know, they might get money or they might have fame, but there's no true purpose to what they're doing. And heck, I see it with pro athletes where they forget why they play the game. And purpose, by the way, doesn't just have to be like saving the world or making the world a better place. Purpose can be, you know, I'm going to make money to support my children. Like that is purpose. Um, so, I do think that the purpose is so important and, and, and it's so um, ingrained in sort of your decision making. You said something there that I want to just bring up, which is this idea of cancer. So dad, you know, goes through it um, when you're 14. Um, share a little bit your experience um, and because this is where the story takes another turn um, in a different direction. But but talk about your experience and your health and uh, just walk us through that experience. So, yeah, so when I was um, 35 years old, this is, you know, I, I played Survivor when I was 27. I went back and played again when I was 30 uh, for Survivor All-Stars. So now I'm 35 years old. I'm training for the New York City Marathon on top of the world. Happy, healthy. Life is great. And I had some really kind of itchy skin, night sweats, and I didn't really know what was going on. Um, I kind of, you know, thought I was... Uh, immune to any sort of, I was, you know, uh, you know, any sort of disease or whatever. So obviously I did not go to the doctor. Um, but after about four months of wondering what was going on inside my body, I went to the doctor. I was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer called CD20 positive Hodgkin's lymphoma, which like I said, is a blood cancer. And, um, which as you can imagine was a complete shock 
to myself, my family, you know, my only connection to cancer was my father. And to me, that meant death. So it was a very frightening time in my life. And um, so uh, I went through multiple rounds of chemotherapy, 22 blasts of radiation. And I had what they called an autologous stem cell transplant, which is a bone marrow transplant, which worked for a while. Um, but then 20 months later, the, I relapsed and the cancer returned. And you know, getting the news that the cancer returned was deflating, you know, exponentially more difficult than the first time around. You know, I had already had the maximum dose of chemo, radiation, a transplant, like I was running out of options. Um, and lucky for me, a, uh, a new kind of um, smart targeted therapy emerged on the market and was available for a select group of people in my exact situation. Um, so I went on this experimental new drug. I was one of uh, less than 200 people who had ever been on this drug. Talking about taking risks again, you know, here I am. I could go with the traditional meds or I could go with this, not alternative, it was passed by the FDA, but very new on the market, no long-term trials on it. Uh, you know, maybe two years was the longest anyone had ever seen it. So I went on that drug, it worked, got me into remission again, and I was able to go on to get a second bone marrow transplant, this time using my brother Lee as the donor. And so he donated his stem cells to save my life. So I kind of breezed through that in a little bit, and there's a lot of shit that goes on in the cancer world, um, and mentally, like survivor, like soccer, cancer is something that touches on every part of you as a, be a human being, mental, physical, social, spiritual, environmental, you know, it, it floors you, and your family, and everyone around you. Can we connect the chapters in your life a little bit? So, uh, first, you yeah, love yeah, to. Like, like first chapter is, you go through this crazy adversity with your dad. Um, but you have this community, you have these values, you have uh, family, you, ha you have stuff to also be fortunate and grateful for. Uh, and then you, you really become a, your identity tied to soccer and it allows you to travel the world and explore new people and uh, sort of let's call that chapter two and uh, you know, learn how soccer can open doors and, 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 and can teach you things. And then you have another chapter where there's survivor which is a once in a lifetime opportunity as is but uh you not only go but you also kick ass and you win um and then you come back and you've got another chapter which is fame and everything's going well and uh, you're giving amos you're 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 leftover i'm gonna call them leftovers i don't know if that's that's uh pc or not but you, you know you're, you're living this life and you're healthy and then it's like they're the other chapter where now something like crappy happens um so as you look at those chapters and along the way, uh, what are the main takeaways for you that you live with today and that you impart on yourself and how you see the world? Well, um, I, I, I often live by the quote, um, never let a crisis go to waste because it's an opportunity to do some really important things. And uh, I kind of live by that these days, you know, um, and so whether it was a, a crisis in Africa or playing survivor or, you know, you can always turn those negative things into positive things and to have the kind of um, the confidence within yourself um, to know that you can be resilient and you can bounce back and you can fight back from these things, uh, I think gave me the strength and gave me the confidence to fight like hell and stay alive for as long as I can. Um, because and it back to that whole thing, like, you know, during this entire thing, like, one of the common theme threads that I always did was helping others. Like it was um, that whole selfless thing. And I really believe like even in the middle of my cancer nightmare, I, I broadcast my journey like on people magazine. Well, 
Like, what else do you do when you get cancer? You go to People Magazine, right? No. But, like, so, here I am, like, I, I had a vid back in the day, and, like, in what, and, uh, there weren't that many vlogs, but I literally, you can go on people.com right now and look at my cancer journey. I filmed, uh, every bit of it from good, good results to bad results to relapsing in chemo transplants. It's all chronicled there. So, to be able to, you know, share my story, to be able to realize that the details of my life have the opportunity to help others out there gave me, purpose you know it gave me the ability to turn this crisis into something good maybe to help others even in the middle of my own nightmare and i think that just uh, helped me heal in some certain ways i had a client once who was sexually assaulted um had had multiple physical ailments and had multiple surgeries and then had uh survived cancer um and she looked at me one day and she said brian i am not a survivor i don't want to survive like that is like such baseline stuff. She's like, I want to be a thriver. She's like, forget surviving. Like, I want to be a thriver. Like, you know, F those people that sexually assaulted me. If I'm just surviving after that, I'm still a victim. He's like, she's like, I don't want to be a victim. I want to be a thriver. And um, that's always struck me as like, wow, first of all, that woman, like, you're a freaking badass. Um, <laughs> like, I hope that I can take that approach when I go through really heavy stuff in my life. Um, but I was curious what you think about her perspective um, on that. Because, look, you have, from a very young age, you, once again, you, you, you were a victim. Um, like, you, you were. And, and certainly with, you know, disease in your 30s is, is, a, is a victim. Um, how do you make sense of her perspective on, on what she went through? I agree. You know, there's been a lot of work. There's a lot of. A lot of talk in the in the cancer world about the word survivor. A lot of the survivors that like to be called survivors, they exactly like that. They like to be called thrivers, um, because you know, and and people define survivors in different ways. Like some people say, when you're just diagnosed, you're considered a survivor. Some people, when you're five years in remission, you're a survivor. So I agree, survivor might not be the right word, um, and I, I agree with her. You know, I think uh, it's important to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and be that thriver. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my wife, um, you know, co kind of coined a word, you know, way it's like service over self, you know, it's like, it's always like, if you're, if you're able to kind of put other people before yourself, um, you know, like it, it gets back to just that purpose and meaning, you know, it gives you meaning in life, I guess you can say. And, you know, I, I've been so, it's been so rewarding for me because, you know, because of social media and because of, you know, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, it's been really I'm easily, I'm, I'm, I'm accessible, which I'm okay with. And so oftentimes, you know, you get these notes where like, I, I read an article about you and this, or I saw you here, or I did that. And I was having those symptoms. So I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed. So like, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of being in a position like I am, like people reach out to me and I get the response. I get to see the, 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 um, the results of my actions. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe that a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So I think I'm very lucky to be able to be in that position where I can put something out there and get instant feedback and usually positive feedback about some of the stuff that I'm doing. Um, like, and that's not, you like, you like creating impact. You don't like sitting on the sidelines, even, even in Zimbabwe where you're sort of backing up, you like being part of something bigger than yourself, valued, making an impact. Those are, those are some of your calling cards. Um, yeah, it's, it's what, but but we're not going to go to CBS and tell them to change the name to Thriver. We'll just stick with stick with Survivor. And I, I 
I think, uh, yeah, it probably won't be as popular. Um, but so I want to sort of close close the loop a little bit. So um, I do think it's it's there comes a time where you have to try to survive in order to thrive. Like like you can't like I think sometimes people are like oh I'm just gonna go to thrive like just like your dad passing away and using that time to to be a victim. Like I think there's it, it's healthy to be a victim and like realize like no this isn't fair and you know this does suck and like to be in that because then if you're real with that then you can get to survivor then you can get to thriver um but you mentioned facebook and twitter and being able to connect with people if people want to follow you and, and learn more about what you're up to and what you're doing how can they find you where can they find you just give us you know social media website all that good stuff yeah i mean uh, you can go to my website which is ezon.com uh you know twitter is at ethan zon and i think facebook fan page is something like that too so ethan's on fan page awesome. um yeah i'm pretty vocal about the stuff that i'm doing and i try to support a, a lot of different organizations and uh you know it really feels good to be able to to do that you know um i think there's a martin luther king quote that says the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort but where he stands in moments of challenge and controversy so you know, my challenge and controversy was, as we know, is like, you know, cancer and Africa and HIV and seeing, you know, that happen in my times of comfort was when CBS handed me that check for $1 million. Um, so, you know, for me to be able to kind of um, use use this to, to do good in the world. But don't get me wrong, it hasn't been like the whole cancer thing. I breezed through it. It's not it's not all like, you know, smiles and, and rainbows all the time. There were days where I was an asshole and I still am. And, you know, physically you're 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 able to get back to life much quicker than mentally. You know, there's a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder that goes around with uh, cancer. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you know, dump trucks full of uncertainty and what ifs if I relapse and all that stuff. So that stuff still lives there. And to be able to manage that is, is fairly difficult. And I urge anyone out there who is going through cancer to find people to talk to and see a therapist and support groups. All I did all that stuff. Um, so it's not like I'm this superhuman person, like, it was tough, and uh, I, I urge everyone out there to have those bad days as well as the good days. I love that you brought that up, and I just think it's so valuable. We so often say, like, oh, go toward the adversity. Go toward the, you know, discomfort. Well, you don't have to necessarily go through discomfort to do great things in this world, and you don't necessarily have to go through adversity to fulfill your potential. And, uh, like, I, I, it's very rare that you meet someone who goes through, like, real shit, and they're like, yeah, you know what? Sign me up for that. I'm, I'm in for that again. Like, that's not the idea. It's just the idea of like, all right, well, what can we do with it? How can we use our mess as our message or whatever it is? But I do think that gets lost in the message sometimes, which is like, dude, just be strong. Like, you've got this. I'm like, well, no, you can go and cry in the corner sometimes because it freaking sucks. And like, sometimes we don't acknowledge the suck enough. Um, yeah. We just tell people to embrace the suck um, without necessarily like feeling the suck and understanding the suck and understand that it's okay that it sucks. And like, you know, it, it's okay. Like you shouldn't want to have cancer. Like you shouldn't want to have your dad pass away. Like, no, those things suck. And by the way, you could have still had done amazing things in this world without those things. And I think we, we, we glorify, oh, glamorize. We glamorize the suck uh, and mm -hmm. it's not glamorous. <laughs> it's, it's just not. No, it's not. It's, it's definitely not. That's a good point. You should rename this, uh, this podcast, you know, the glamour of suck. That's what you should do. That's just not me. 
Um, but I'll think about it. I'll, I'll think about it. Um, Ethan, I really appreciate the time. Um, it's, been, it's been great to get to know you over the last hour or so. Um, you've got a fascinating story. I, I think you know that even in your own humble way. Um, and I appreciate getting to know you and, and thank you for taking the time to share your story. And if there's ever anything that I can do to help you out, uh, certainly, um, you know, I think what, what you're doing with the game of soccer as someone who, who's in the sports world, there might be ways for us to connect and, and maybe I can help out um, in, in, a, in a multitude of ways. So we'll talk offline, but uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, thank you so much for having me.